The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I thought we could um, spend the evening talking about Sangha, which is a Pali word, um, which means this spiritual community. Um, and it's one of the three refuges that traditionally Buddhists take. Um, of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So we want to look at what does that mean to take refuge and what's actually trustworthy and worthy of taking refuge. So I like um, the way Mark and some other teachers, I think he got it originally from Tara Brock, but she really talks about these three refuges going a bit deeper than just the historical Buddha, um, but more that the Buddha is this quality of wakefulness that we can recognize in ourselves and others. And then Dhamma is the way it is, so what Buddha wakes up to. So when we have a moment of mindfulness, moment of being with things as they are, not putting a spin on things, then what we realize is Dhamma, the way it is. And then this really, I think, interesting and mysterious third part of Sangha is what happens when Buddha meets Dhamma, when this wakeful, present quality of mind is with however it is then sangha, these beautiful qualities that we see in ourselves and in others, in our spiritual community, um, manifest these qualities of generosity, kindness, patience, and many others that we could list. So... What do we actually take refuge in when it comes to sangha, to community? Do we take refuge in our relationships, in our community, like the community here at Common Ground, in our teachers? And... that uh, teaching, this traditional teaching on the three refuges has always resonated with me. And uh, I always appreciate um, looking at it in a very deep way, like what's actually a refuge in this moment. Because if it's a real refuge, it has to be available now. So then it, it, it uh, asks us to look more deeply Can we really take refuge in even our best friends, our family, people we really love and care about? So we're going to explore some of these nuances of what we mean by sangha and community and where's the real refuge in the midst of waking up, this practice of waking up, but we wake up in a world, in a community, in communities, in families, in relationship. So we wake up right in the midst of our lives. So we want to hold ideals as ideals, understand ideals as ideals, um, like the ideal of the beloved community is one that I'll reference in my talk. Um, Martin Luther King and others um, use this term, and I just found it came to mind when I was preparing the talk. So we can hold that as an ideal, and as an ideal it can be very inspiring, uh, And we can imagine sometime in the future when people will 
respect each other, treat each other justly, everyone will be equals. And that can inspire us. Um, and we can also recognize moments of this beloved community here and now so that it's not just an ideal that we're hoping for and realistically probably will never happen. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not beautiful and that people like Dr. King who were inspired by this ideal weren't in touch with something real. It really takes being in touch with something that real, that power of love to give one's life, to be willing to give one's life. So these ideals are really pointing to a reality that we have all probably in moments experienced of this beloved community with just ordinary moments, um, with our relationships. This, these moments when it's not one personality and another personality, but it's Buddha knowing Dhamma. So this quality of real listening, of real wakefulness with another, which is really amazing. And it's kind of probably one of the reasons it's so rare because to really be present with somebody, we have to put down all of our preconceptions about them, who we think we are, which so often are there as a defense to really being present. And it's really opening to a mystery, even with people we're close to, to really be with them in this way. And we should also, I think, recognize um, that we have a lot of conditioning uh, in this society and probably just in general as a biological conditioning of feeling separate. So a feeling fear, isolation, a sense of separation from others, which is a source of a lot of pain individually, societally. So we want to really be honest about that too. And uh, this is where I think some of us, at least I know for myself, can have a bit of a pushback against when we hear teachings on sangha, on community, on these beautiful qualities of mind, of kindness. Um, because we've been taught them at times as ideals that we should be kind. But we, we recognize that a lot of the time we don't feel this sense of connection. We feel separate. But just because we feel that way doesn't mean that it's true, but it does mean that we want to recognize that and investigate it, be interested in it. Where does that come from, that feeling of separation? How does it happen in a moment? And I think what's most important is that we're, we also recognize that even though at times we might feel separate, disconnected, we really yearn for connection, for wholeness. And we can trust that, sort of what I was pointing to at the end of the guided meditation, just that tender-heartedness. So we want to see whatever qualities of sangha, these beautiful qualities of connection, of kindness, as something natural so that it arises naturally because we, like I was pointing to at the end of the meditation, we sense that this heart wants to be at ease and we sense that everyone else in the room really isn't very different from us and that we have a conditioned mind and heart that wants to be at ease, wants to feel connected. 
And I think this is helpful to see it as something, the most natural thing, um, and that there's just deep habits, deep cultural habits. Because otherwise we can just have an ideal, um, an ideal of being a good person, being a nice person. And we all know what it's like to try to be nice when we're not feeling nice or to be around somebody who who's trying to be nice as opposed to being around someone who's just present with themselves, with us, being real. And that 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 we can trust that whatever sense of connection there could be would arise naturally when the when the personality isn't caught up in its self dramas. So a lot of it is just seeing that this force of habit, whatever the habit might be of separation, and yet still recognizing the pain in that and that relaxing that grip of separation, relaxing that grip of self-centeredness into generosity, for example, that it actually feels better. Sometimes uh, it, it seems that that's really all the practice is, is just remembering to recognize what actually feels good and tuning into that, what actually feels healing, wholesome. In the most simple of ways, does it feel wholesome to be caught in worry? And it's not to judge ourselves, it's to recognize we do have these habits. But it's just, uh, it, it helps me to, to frame it in, in that simple of a way that seems like it's in some ways, even though the practice can seem very difficult because of the force of habit, on the other hand, it really is the path of least resistance, the path of letting go, the path of letting go of these habits that aren't helpful, finding what actually feels good. But to do that, we often have to pass through the gate of our habits to protect ourselves Thich Nhat Hanh says, happiness is available. Please help yourself. But in our practice and in community, in the practice of waking up in the middle of our lives with our relationships, One of the reasons that we we trust our habits of closing down, and even when they don't really work, they're comfortable and they're familiar, whatever our given habit might be of shutting down, of freaking out, just numbing ourselves. And that's because there there are difficulties in our there in our lives, in our communities, and living, in being in relationship. So what this practice is when we come up against something difficult, it's really a, a big part of our practice because that's where so much of our conditioning is, is around what's difficult, what we find difficult. So there's a lot of teachings on this. Ajahn Sumedho is one of my favorite teachers. He's a monk, um, American monk, but teaches, uh, taught in Britain for a long time. Now he's retired in Thailand. But um, he talks a lot about our relationship to what's difficult. And he translated the Four Noble Truths a little differently as suffering should be welcomed. So what is that? like to, in our experience to 
to have even, you know, can just be a small discomfort. Remember we forgot something. Or it can be something big. We turn on the news and we're overwhelmed. Um, but just to look at that and to investigate how do we understand. I mean, I know for me, it always feels like a surprise or a betrayal. Like, no, I thought I had, you know, I thought I had, put that away or I thought I had, you know, I thought today was going to be a good day, but now this happens. So usually our relationship isn't one of welcoming. Welcoming what's difficult. But going back to that theme of the path of least resistance, when we think about it logically, it doesn't actually make sense to resist what's already true, however difficult it might be. We spend a lot of energy with these habits, whatever they may be, of denial, distraction. So in my experience, when I've opened to some emotional pain that I've been keeping at bay for some time. Those have been really fulfilling moments because I gain back a lot of that energy that I've been spending thinking that that's the only way to keep something at bay, can't be felt. So this is something that that we investigate is our relationship to what's difficult. And there's a lot of learning here. And right along with that is this practice of forgiveness that really is essential because we have these habits individually collectively, basically that we have these habits that have somewhat worked. If they, had, if they didn't work at all, we wouldn't do them, but they work to some degree to distract ourselves from the pain, whatever it might be. So we have to forgive ourselves and others. I noticed... Uh, Recently, I did something that I wasn't proud of, and I just noticed in the next days after, um, I didn't want to feel that. So I would, I was choosing in some ways to keep distracting myself from the fact that I'd done that. I, I and. Uh, yeah, it was just really interesting that I would rather keep distracting myself. I didn't want to, and I saw it was a lot about self and about identity, like I'm not the person who does that. But of course, in seeing that, in that moment, it, it, there, there was a moment of freedom when I realized, oh, that's just about me wanting to be a good person. But it felt so much better in a moment to be the person who could forgive myself for being all of who I am, a person who makes mistakes. But it took a while. It took a few days of, of, of seeing that. Uh, there's a an article by Andy Olensky, who's um, was one of the main scholars at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies um, in Barry, Massachusetts, and he wrote a short article in Tricycle recently called "The Trouble with Teachers." And um, he's talking about how the he 
as a scholar, he um, can provide this context of how the Buddha didn't appoint a successor when he died. Um, instead, the teachings were there. He had taught for 40 years, and um, and Andy was speculating that this was to not create a hierarchy, um, just to not create dynamics that would be difficult in the community. And so that's sort of the inheritance that we have. And that was just uh, interesting, an interesting way to think about Sangha, think about our community, think about our teachers, that we're all walking this path together. The Buddha is our primary teacher, but now it's just us. And we're just all helping each other. And we have some people who are maybe further along, and we can be inspired by them, by their example, but that we're all learning from each other. And we're learning from each other's strengths and each other's weaknesses. So, um, Sayada Utejaniya, another great teacher, Burmese monk, uh, says when you see someone doing something that annoys you, they're saying, don't do that. Don't do this. They're teaching you. Don't do what I'm doing. <laughs> and so we really get to see this in community, how, um, how we reflect back for each other. And we, we can both reflect back the places we still have to grow when we have good friends that are willing to point out uh, places that we're not seeing, our blind spots. But we can also reflect back at each other this forgiveness and this acceptance of our imperfections. And also, at the same time, really be inspired to practice, to do this practice of seen more deeply our conditioning that causes suffering for ourselves and others when we're in community and we see how the way we are really impacts others, that it really matters how we are, what we do with our time. It's not just about us. It can't just be about us, even if we wanna want it to just be about us and we're just going to take care of ourselves. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, I already mentioned uh, a monk. He's been a monk for more than 40 years. And so this is from an interview with him. So Philip Moffat is interviewing him. Philip Moffat says, Having been a monk for 40 years, you now know a great deal about human nature. Looking back, is there one particular thing that would be most surprising to that 30-year-old who first put on robes? Yes, not to believe anything your mind says. And he laughs. Say more about that. In other words, you're not what you think. This, this is the greatest discovery. At 30, my thoughts were my reality. They were the way I created and judged myself. I was very hard on myself and in many ways quite cruel and judgmental. Now I know how to think without being a victim of my, th my own thoughts. On a recent retreat, you repeatedly said, the personality never gets enlightened. What I regard as personality are my habits of thinking and attachment to memory and just the way I've developed on a personal level. These are like habits you acquire. So like any habit, they are what they are, but they're not anything more than that. They have no life to them. This self that seems so real, so me and mine, is dead stuff, really. It no longer has any illusion of being person or soul. It's like being free from the dreariness of habitual patterns of thought and emotion that tended to dominate consciousness before. At the last retreat, many students remarked on how fully accepted they felt when they were in your presence. And then he says, 
Once I became cognitive of the emptiness of consciousness, that there was just awareness, I could see people without any kind of memory or opinion about them. So I think this is connected to our, the way we are in community and relationship. Like I was saying earlier, how often are we really there with somebody? And so, and where we are when we're not there with somebody is we're in these habits of thinking, these habits of creating our stories and redefining them because that's more comfortable. But I like, I like this, this interview. It really just seemed to point beyond that sense that I know I can have and probably most of us can have at times of um, yeah, not, not feeling connected because we're not really here. We're in our thoughts about things, in our plans and worries. And when we're in that place, like you said, it's, it's not really alive because our concepts about things, our stories about things are just stories. They're not reality. And so we start to feel less and less alive and then we need more intense experiences or we just need we just scare ourselves with our stories and that's sort of what we take to feel alive so we scare ourselves or we entice ourselves but really what we're feeling there even though it sort of feels alive it's really just suffering it's really just tightening the heart, putting a clamp on the heart, but it feels like something. But it's really all we know in some ways is this world of our stories of ourself, our self-drama, the story of me used to be like that. Someday I'll be enlightened. So it's really a shift, and um, yeah, it's going against our habit. But when we get a taste of it, just a taste of what it's like to to know our stories, we have stories, know our thoughts, we have thoughts. But when we have moments of real connection, of real intimacy, It's something different, and um, I'll let uh, Deepama describe it. Deepama was a teacher um, who taught a lot of the teachers at Insight Meditation Society, which is sort of um, our grandfather meditation center. So uh, Jack Engler was a psychologist who did a lot of research on meditators in the 60s, I think. But he asked her about the place of fun in Buddhist practice. This all sounds very gray, he said. Getting rid of the passion, getting rid of anger, getting rid of desire. It seems like a kind of gray existence. Where's the juice? Oh, you don't understand, Deepama burst out laughing. There's so much sameness in ordinary life. We are always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. Once greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. Can we say that about our lives, that every moment is full of taste and zest? What would that look like? I was on a long retreat after college, did an eight-month retreat out at Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. It was great. I recommend it. Um, and uh, one of 
the teachers said on her first day teaching at that retreat. Um, they switched teachers in the middle of the three-month retreat. Um, something like, you really have to be willing to feel to do this practice. I hate to break it to you, but you're going to have to feel if you want to do this practice. So I think that's can be, for some of us, one of the barriers to this life of taste and zest. Because the tastes might not always be what we'd like, we'd prefer, so we might prefer to, to numb out. Charlotte Jokobeck is a Zen teacher. I think she's dead now, but again, one of my favorite teachers. She also talks a lot about the energy that comes um, when we start to open to what's difficult. So I'll read a little bit um, from her. I think this is from Nothing Special, her book, Nothing Special. Sitting is not about finding a happy, blissful state. These states may occur in sitting when we've really experienced our pain over and over so that finally there's just letting go. That surrender and opening into something fresh and new is the consequence of experiencing pain, not a consequence of finding a place where we can shut the pain out. And then she talks about this metaphor she has of the cocoon of pain, that we really have to completely inhabit this cocoon. And then when we're perfectly willing to be there in that cocoon, then it begins to dissolve. And she goes on, says, I recently heard a quotation from a professional athlete. Love is not shared pleasure. It is shared pain. That's a good insight. We can certainly enjoy going out with our partner, for example, and having dinner together. I'm not questioning the value of shared enjoyment. But if we want a relationship to be closer and more genuine, we need to share with our partner that which is most scary for us to share with anybody. When we do that, then the other person has freedom to do the same thing. Instead, we want to keep our image, particularly with somebody we're trying to impress. Sharing our pain... Yeah, well, she goes on, but... (laughs) <laughs> I won't read all of it. <laughs> With, I like this. Without this quality of openness and vulnerability, partners don't really know each other. They're one image living with another image. So I think that's that's really true. Um, if it were up to us, unless we have wisdom, we prefer to, to stay where it's comfortable. Um, I recently did the anti-racism circle here for 10 weeks, so that's been on my mind. And Yeah, it really seems like it's um, one of the most salient examples of of how, as a society, we will put off opening to these deep wounds, basically forever, if we can. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would probably do that in, in all other aspects of our life as well, if we could get away with just having one pleasant experience after another, um, we would do it. Um, but seeing as that's not possible, then we have to to basically see what, what does work, given that we do have these wounds collectively, personally, that there is this pain and injustice What's the way to be with it?
and to really have a lot of forgiveness and patience with um, with how it's difficult, but but at the same time really recognizing how imperative it is. And seeing, being willing to see all of our reactions clearly. So it's not about finding the right way to be or the right thing to do. It's really more about being willing to see our conditioning and our the way we relate to these places of pain, whether it's just to shut down, whether it's to be self-righteous, think we, we know what to do and we need to inform others, whether we're overwhelmed or just overcome with rage at the injustices. Uh, for me, I see that in terms of um, doing the anti-racism circle, I just, it's just, I'm so grateful that, that it happened here. Um, and yeah, it's just helped me see, in terms of my conditioning, um, the, the conditioning of wanting to, to be a good anti-racist person and um, how even that If it's coming out of some sense of separation, I, I've done some anti-racism work, um, and so I have something to say, and I want so. But just the minute it's, it's in that, you know, already I, I'm just getting a lot better at seeing how that's just another way of of defending myself against this enormous pain and a way of distancing myself as though to say I'm not part of the problem when really so and in general uh, this whole Buddhist path and in particular um, talking about anti-racism or um, other areas it's not about finding someone to blame, being right. That's a lot of the times we'd like to, we just want to find out what we can do so that we don't have to feel what we, what we can sense into it is out there, this pain. Or we know from our own experience this enormous pain. It's really more about allowing everything to come up and be known and trusting that this space of awareness, of kind awareness, with persistence, with gentle persistence, can untangle these knots. And we can trust this longing we have for connection. But we can't skip the messiness of seeing our own conditioning, whatever that might be for us. So I think I sort of thought going into the anti-racism circle that at the end, I might have acquired more knowledge, which I definitely did. Um, but in terms of maybe like me personally as a self, as an identity, um, have more solid ground. But it's really um, just... I think what I'm learning little by little and um, is just to 
to have an open heart and to really be interested because we actually, it actually helps us to be more interested. We're more willing to be interested when we see that it's not personal, that we're all part of a racist society and having grown up in a racist society, it's in our minds and hearts. And that that's, um, it's not something to be ashamed about, something to definitely be aware of. Um, but, um, but to really have a sense that whatever, however painful these knots are, um, a knot has been constructed, so it can be deconstructed. But it has. We have to go through all the steps, and this is true in all other aspects of our practice. We have to be willing to see that knot, understand how exactly it works, be with it, with a lot of compassion, a lot of care. So, so when we're, we talk about Sangha and the beloved community, um, I think it's really important to recognize the moments that we have experienced, that we are experiencing this reality, that it is a reality. It's not just a fairy tale not just something that um, we were taught as kids that you should be nice. And recognizing what's in the way of, of Sangha, I think, is just as important as recognizing the moments of Sangha. So even if we might look through our typical day and not see a lot of moments of complete presence and kindness, generosity. Well, we can be interested in that, have a lot of compassion for that, and recognize however subtle, however imperfect, there are these moments. And at the very least, we can recognize that we really long for these moments. And we can get interested in what actually supports um, connection. The Buddha said, spiritual friendship is not half the holy life, but the whole of it. So, whoever we are, we have, we're we're on this path of waking up, and to see it as we're waking up in the midst of our life, with our life as it is, with the people in our life that we're with, our families, friends, communities. So that we're, we're not waiting for an ideal, but we're really practicing in our daily lives um, recognizing and cultivating these qualities, but recognizing, just to recognize what's already present, what beautiful qualities are already being set in motion in ourselves, in others. And coming back to this theme of refuge, we can investigate where does this quality of sangha come from and where is our refuge in the midst of this 
busy, wild life with um, our community, the world, our city, our loved ones. And so we can investigate what's, what's a real refuge, what allows us to have this heart that's willing to be present no matter the circumstance. Well, I think I'll end there and so we have time for some questions or comments, maybe times in your life where you're really appreciating uh, these qualities of Sangha manifesting in others or in yourself, areas that it's difficult to feel that sense of connection or any other things that come to mind. It'd be great to hear from the wisdom of the group. Yeah. Yeah, I I really like this framework of just was reflecting on it recently of like just as a hypothesis as an experiment when Buddha knows dhamma sangha is expressed these beautiful qualities are expressed so that it's as simple as that that we don't have to rely on a plan or, um, yeah, some idea of how we're going to get through life or even what we're going to do, but that we can trust this refuge of just this wakeful presence, being with the way it is in this very simple way, and that out of that, the appropriate response will arise. And because that appropriate response isn't coming out of some idea of what I should do. It's just coming out of really being connected, being intimate with the way it is, which includes our own experience. First and foremost, it's the most predominant, most proximate thing in our experience. So a lot of our practice, too, is seeing what's asking for attention and knowing where to put our, our attention in a moment. So, in a, putting our attention somewhere that helps the mind balance, but also looking for any part of our experience that's being left out, because that's where a lot of that energy will be, that energy of being present, of Sangha then being willing to be there Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so Michael was talking about uh, the force of habit and how he's been recognizing how it can be so strong that the mind isn't able to put it down in meditation and also in daily life. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to having a conditioned mind. A deeply conditioned mind. That's why it can be useful to have the cosmology of Buddhism where the idea is that we've had infinite lives to develop these deep habits. (laughs) So having a lot of patience and compassion, but also a lot of persistence and perseverance, just knowing that for the at the least we can recognize this isn't working but i don't really know what else to do and i really care about that um, yeah and sometimes when when habits are really strong just we have to be creative and do things that challenge that habit um even if it's just something external, like going out with friends, um, 
putting ourselves in situations that challenge that habit because um, it will have an effect. Um, our external conditions will have an effect. So I think a big part of it is um, we sort of are trying to poke holes in our certainty of that habit. And that happens really slowly. Um, but we want to recognize those moments. And so sometimes it might be you recognize when you're sitting that there's just so much force of habit that what you're doing isn't working. So you try different things. You might try opening your eyes or just getting up, doing walking meditation. Um, but then the next day, it might be a lot easier. So um, to be creative... But what we realize then when we ha- when we even if it's just the next day and we re- re- we recognize oh that habit that felt so strong and so real it's not actually that active right now so just the more we recognize that the more holes there are so then eventually even when we are really caught in that habit or really feel the force of that habit um, there's just a little bit more wisdom that recognizes oh that's just a really deep habit and it really feels like I need to to follow that. But instead I can just feel what it feels like to really want to do this or feel like I have to do this. And that's a po- place of a lot of power when we can just feel that tremendous force of habit and recognize it is just what it is. Good luck. (laughs) Um, Let's just take a minute and let go of the words, sit together. Appreciating being in community and appreciating being part of a wide stream of people like us and over these thousands of years practicing to realize a refuge in this life, a real refuge, and then to express that in the midst of our life, of our relationships, in our communities. We have received this inheritance of these teachings, this example of the many women and men, people have done their practice in the midst of their busy lives. And now it's our turn to do the best we can. Thanks, everyone, for being here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.